Our second lesson is again the familiar words that set for us the beginning of the, one of the most familiar parts of Scripture and one which is so essential to our understanding of our need of the grace of God, the words of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. But in order to understand this properly, we need to go back to Matthew chapter 4 and begin to read at verse 17, then skip to verse 23 through uh, chapter 5, uh, verse uh, 3. From that day, Jesus began to proclaim the message, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is upon you. He went round the whole of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and curing whatever ills or infirmity there was among the people. His fame reached the whole of Syria, and sufferers from every kind of illness, racked with pain, possessed by devils, epileptic or paralyzed, were all brought to him, and he cured them all. Great crowds also followed him from Galilee and the ten towns, from Jerusalem and Judea and from Transjordan. When he saw the crowds, he went up the hill, and there he took his seat, and when his disciples had gathered round him, he began to address them, and this is the teaching that he gave. How blessed are those who know that they are poor, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. May God bless to our understanding this part of his word. I have been thinking in terms of preaching a series of sermons that deal with the Sermon on the Mount. One of the reasons that I propose to do this is that I can well remember when I first became a Christian, I had the privilege of being with some very good Christian people but some people who had a rather interesting interpretation of the Bible. They told me that the Sermon on the Mount was to be reserved for the millennium, and that then, I would, uh, that then is uh, when it would be incumbent upon people to live in this way. Now, I don't need the Sermon on the Mount during the millennium. When the millennium comes, I ought to be in better shape to live like the Lord wants me to. I need it now. I need it now because it can do like the Ten Commandments and show me how much I need the grace of God and how much I need to fall back upon Christ. It needs to, I need it to show me what Christ expects of those who are born again. It must be remembered that the Sermon on the Mount is not given simply as good advice or some philosophy to be purveyed uh, amongst the peoples of the world. No, indeed. It's committed to those who are committed to Jesus Christ. It's committed to them so that they shall fall back upon the mercy of God and seek to reflect in their lives the characteristics which he outlines uh, in what he is going to teach us here. Perhaps first of all, it's best to begin right where Jesus begins, right after John the Baptist had baptized Jesus in the River Jordan. We read that Jesus is driven into the wilderness. And there for 40 days and 40 nights he fasts, he prays, he is about to initiate his proclamation. He is about to begin the work of the establishment of his new kingdom. And as this new king prays and thinks about all that there is to come, he fasts until his body 
is racked with the hunger of pain until his soul is obsessed with all that there is to be done in the world uh, to which God has called him to minister. And when he had finished this, you remember Satan comes to him and he begins to tempt him about ways in which he might establish his kingdom. He knows he is hungry and so he appeals to this basic need of man and bids him to look at some little stones that look like loaves of bread that his mother used to make and said if you're the son of God then turn these stones into bread and satisfy your hunger. This would be one way to establish your kingdom. Be the bread man. See to it that everyone in the world is well fed. This way you can establish your kingdom. There are some politicians who tell us very nearly the same thing today. Now it should be remembered that the Lord Jesus Christ worked for all of his life unto this point in a carpenter shop. He knew what it was to make a few pennies for a day's hard labor with a mallet and a saw and a chisel. He knew what it was to grub about for the money that he had to have to help to support his brothers and his sisters and his mother's family. He knew what a working man goes through. He knew that the crowds to whom he would be speaking were people who largely were without work. This is intimated in one of the parables where he tells of crowds of people looking for a job just for a day. No one had greater sympathy with the poor than the Lord Jesus did. No one should have greater sympathy for the poor today than those who follow Jesus Christ. We should all be seeking means by which we can alleviate poverty and suffering. That's when we show we're close to him in one of the ways. But we must not let this become an end in itself. Because if we let it become an end in itself, it is only a materialistic gospel. It's only the same thing that Marx and Engels and Chairman Mao and the rest of those who do not know Christ or God nor care uh, want to do too. They want to, to spread material uh, wealth. They want to even it out. And much evil has been done in that name. I am convinced that if every person on the planet Earth had enough to eat, and a place to sleep and some reasonable relief from pain or suffering that there would still uh, be injustices inflicted upon man because man is basically greedy and sinful. This is one of his curses and that's why Jesus teaches us that he needs a new nature, a new nature given to him by a work of the Holy Spirit. And uh, so this is what he plainly teaches when he refutes the devil's idea of being the bread man. Satan also had other ideas. He told him to go up to the top of the temple and to cast himself down. And as Shakespeare points out, uh, Satan can cite scriptures for his own purposes. He tells him that the angels will bear him up in their hands lest he dash his foot against a stone. And Jesus will not be the stunt man. How many people I know who would say to me, oh, if you'll just pray for me and God will take away this pain, then I'll be a Christian. You just pray for me so that I'll never want another drink of alcohol and I'll be freed from alcoholism and I'll be a follower of Christ. Well, if I could touch you and tell you you'd never want another drink, 
If I could touch you and tell you that you would always be freed from suffering, I'd have a line of people as long as from here to New York waiting for some quick, easy way out. I noticed this week in the paper that even Oral Roberts has just got an operation on his shoulder. Uh, but, uh, people are going to hurt. It's, it's going to be a part of God's plan. We have a right to pray and to ask for deliverance, and God has a right to teach us to do, let, us do th let, it, let him do things his way. We all need to learn, and I'm convinced there's some lessons that are hard lessons to learn uh, and can't be learned any other way. Well, he won't be the stunt man. He won't be the bread man. And so then the old game of politics enters in. Satan shows him in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and a vision all of the kingdoms of the world and says, now if you'll just compromise your message, if you'll just bow down and worship me, if you'll just be the leader of civil religion, so to speak, then, then I'll deliver all of these kingdoms unto you. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is going to be obedient. And he means for every single follower of him to follow in his steps and to be obedient too. And he will reckon no authority above the authority of God. And he will not bow down to Satan nor worship him. You can always look forward to alliances between an unholy religion and a world political system because this is one of those indicators of the end times that scripture speaks of. And then we come to see the compassion of Jesus, how sick people came to him from every walk of life. I noticed in the hospital that I was in a few weeks ago in Rochester, Minnesota, a Catholic hospital, there was a great portrait of Jesus healing. And these words uh, from Matthew were there uh, about all the types and manners of people who came to him and he healed them. He healed them all. Isn't that remarkable? He went round the whole of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, curing whatever illness or infirmity there was among the people. His fame reached the whole of Syria. Sufferers of every kind of illness, racked with pain, possessed by devils, epileptic or paralyzed, were all brought to him, and he cured them all. He was demonstrating there the power of God, that he is the God-man. And he was showing his credentials as the Messiah. We used to sing this blessed old hymn in Scotland about Jesus and his healing. O Savior Christ, our woes dispel, for our some are sick and some are sad. And some have never loved thee well, and some have lost the love they had. O Savior Christ, thou too art man. Thou hast been troubled, tempted, tried. Thy kind but searching glance can scan the very wounds that shame would hide. Many of us are like that here this morning. And if we are, then we ought to remember these words. Thy touch has still its ancient power. No word from thee can fruitless fall. Here in this solemn hour and in thy mercy, heal us all. And so we need healing too. And now we come to his teaching on the mountain. He calls his disciples unto him, apart from the multitudes. This does not mean that the multitudes may not have been on the fringe listening, but it means that he is primarily speaking to those who already
uh, are awakening to the fact that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, as he looks at these disciples of his own, and as he looks to the crowd that are gathered, he realizes that, that clouds of poverty hang over those people. He knows that they are racked with disease, as we have already seen. He knows that they are victims of ignorance and superstition. He knows that they are afraid of death. He knows that a cruel dictator, far worse than any dictator in the world today, reigns in Rome. And yet he speaks those matchless golden words from the Sermon on the Mount to these disciples and to those who are hanging there to listen. For those who are committed to him, he is going to show. He is going to show to them how much they need him. Now, I've had people come up to, and say to me, oh, well, my religion is the Sermon on the Mount, and I live it. The only thing that I can say to that and try to be charitable is either you've never read it, or you don't understand it, or you're lying. You read it. Read it like you would look in a mirror and be realistic and see how close you come to seeing what is shown here about yourself or about myself. But this is all for a purpose, and it's all to draw us toward Calvary. It's to draw us toward Jesus Christ. And so when he goes up into the mountain and his disciples have come to him, he speaks to them. And the first of the Beatitudes must have been quite a shock because our Hebrew friends think of material possessions as a great sign of the favor of God. And here Jesus is going to speak something that will sound strange in their ears. He says, how blessed are those who are poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How blessed are those who are poor. In Luke, it's put plainly that way. Matthew explains it a little bit for us by saying those who are poor in spirit or who, knows their, who know their own spiritual poverty. You see, the Bible often warns us about the deceitfulness of riches. In the 16th chapter of Luke, you read an account of a beggar named Lazarus who sat every day at the gate of a rich man. And poor Lazarus ate only the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table and the dogs came and licked his sores. And you know how that when Lazarus had died, he was taken to Abraham's bosom. And the Bible tells us with one of those cryptic phrases that the rich man died and was buried. And then in that other world, the rich man who had been so callous toward and indifferent toward the poverty of the one who sat at his gate is in torment. And believe me, these are words that fall from the lips of Jesus, and they're to be taken very seriously. He begins to want deliverance from his torment. He wants a messenger sent back to his brothers so that they will not come to that place of torment either. And so Jesus warns about riches. In Luke 6, where the same beatitude is cited, Jesus gives that statement about it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, a big old humpy hairy camel with big feet, 
uh, to slither through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now why? Because riches can be deceptive. Riches can fool us into thinking that we're much smarter than we are, that we're more important than we really are, that we really can be independent of God. They can create great troubles for us. I saw uh, Jean Paul Getty being interviewed on the Today program, one of the few things that I enjoyed Barbara Walters doing. Uh, and, um, you know, you know what, he, he was asked this question, I'm sure he'd been asked it over and over. He was asked whether money, whether money made people happier or whether it caused them more trouble. And he was a long, long time in answering. He was very silent for a long time. And finally, Jean Paul Getty, the richest man on the planet Earth, said, I don't know. I expect it causes him more trouble. You see, he's been through six wives. He knows a little bit of failure in that area. He lost much of the affection of members of his family. And what good is money in that respect anyway? I'm always very fond of telling the story of a Texas rancher who had a very rich neighbor who died. And it's funny how people always come around after someone dies. There's an old statement that where there's a will, there's relatives. And, and uh, they, asked, uh, they asked this old farmer, they said, uh, of the man who died, they said, how much did he leave? And the old farmer wisely replied, he left it all. <laughs> he left it all. I've never found a candidate who wanted to be the richest man in the cemetery. Uh, and, uh, and so money can be deceptive. It can fool you in a great many ways. Now money is also relative, or wealth is relative. I have a wristwatch, I have clothes, I have a place to live, I'll have something to eat today. And there are places in the world where a person with these possessions would be considered quite wealthy indeed. Quite wealthy indeed. And so riches are relative. You can be a poor man as far as money is concerned and still have your mind bent on money. I remember one facetious person I spoke to once. I asked him if he was living a Christian life. He said, on the money I make, I can't live any other way. Well, he, he was just mocking, of course. I remember, <laughs> have you seen this Reverend Ike on television? He said the only denominations he believed in were 10s, 20s, and 50s. Uh, he said, if you think money's evil, then let me save you from a lot of evil. Just give it all to me. Uh, this is the mentality of certain people. But uh, the scriptures teach us that wealth is to be held lightly, that it is of transitory worth, it is responsibility unto God. And Jesus makes it plain in another place that unto whom much is given of him shall much be required. Now the reason that I've stated that is that some of the great philosophers of the world, like Aristotle, felt that certain classes of people could never be happy, that a poor man economically could never be happy. 
Because he would have to work too hard, he would never be able to enlarge his mind into an appreciation of the aesthetic things of life. That a slave could never be happy because he did not own his own time. Well, the message that Jesus brings, and the message that he sent back to John the Baptist when John the Baptist was in prison and wondered about Jesus as the Messiah, was that the poor have the gospel preached unto them. And it wasn't a mockery. He wasn't just flinging a text out to hungry people. He fed hungry people. But he was showing them that there was something bigger and better than material possessions. And that there was also a trap that would often ensnare people who had possessions. Now Matthew wants us to know that those who are poor in spirit, it doesn't mean poor spirited people, but it means people who recognize their need of him, that these people can go on the road to happiness. Oh, back in 1776, in June, there was a committee of the Continental Congress that met to draw up the Declaration of Independence. And in a bricklayer's house in the city of Philadelphia, a man by the name of Thomas Jefferson, who had a great deal of literary uh, capability, and who also, also knew how to steal a little bit from John Locke, uh, wrote out the beginning. John Locke had said, uh, life, liberty, and the ownership of property. And Jefferson scratched out ownership of property and put life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so our government is supposed to guarantee this for us, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. I'm not sure that the pursuit of happiness as such is any great uh, and golden aim. If it's happiness under God, happiness by the way is a word that uh, from which comes the word hap or happen. It has a great deal of chanciness in it. The bliss which is spoken of here is a condition that is conferred by God upon those who are in a right relationship to him. That's why he tells us that those who are poor in spirit, who have recognized their own need of him, that these can already be in a possession of happiness. Now, I've seen this occur. I can never forget the first church that I served. I suppose every pastor remembers well his first congregation. We had five elders. I remember one night when there was a snowstorm over in Haywood County. We'd gathered in the tiny little study that I had and uh, the elders, there was one medical doctor, there was one well-to-do industrialist who was a very wonderful Christian and a fine uh, elder in our church. There was a, a mechanic who worked for the Ford company. There was a man who had achieved a great deal of wealth in building highways. There was another man who was a baker. We were all gathered in the room. And whatever the issue was, it was an issue for which we needed prayer. And one of the elders said, I suggest that we all pray around the room. But when he said this, I noticed that the man who was a mechanic visibly flinched. 
And I knew right away he was a person that I'd never heard say anything in public. He was a quiet person. His hands were scarred and gnarled from lifting motors, from working with his hands all day long in the creases where his knuckles were, where the pores of skin were, there was black oil, dirt, great calluses. And as the prayer began to proceed around the room, when it got to Albert Abel, the mechanic, there was a long pause. We could almost hear each other's hearts beating. We wondered what Albert would say. I wondered whether I ought to quickly pick up the prayer at that point. I could tell that he wanted to pray audibly. And then finally, he choked out with a quivering voice these words. Lord, teach us how much we need you. That's all he said. Lord, teach us how much we need you. No one ever made a better prayer than that. That's what he means here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. If you know how much you need him, then you are a candidate for salvation. Then you are one who is in possession of the kingdom of God. Because this beatitude is to teach us what Paul found that he could never know righteousness through the works of the law and that he had to come to a righteousness that was given to him from the cross. It teaches us what Martin Luther found that through beating and starving his body and all of the pilgrimages that he could make to Rome and all the veneration of the relics of the saints and all of the acts of penance that he could not know righteousness with God until one day he had to scream that he hated God because God was demanding of him that which he could not give. And when he had come to that point, then God gave to Martin Luther that great text, the just shall live by faith, you'll be justified and righteous before God by faith. And the mechanic said, Lord, teach us, teach us our need, how much we need thee, how much we need you. One of my friends told me the other day about visiting with Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He said that Solzhenitsyn was describing to him an experience that was his in prison. That he couldn't take it any longer. He was starved to death. He was worked to death. And he had nothing further to live for. He got to the point where he was ready to commit suicide. And one who was in prison with him saw his desperate need. And because they were not permitted to speak with each other in a solitary confinement situation, the other prisoner drew on the ground the sign of the fish indicating that he was a Christian. And then he made a cross. And Solzhenitsyn said that when he looked at that cross, 
he realized that he had never suffered as much as Jesus had suffered. And he realized that if Jesus suffered that much for him, that he could take it. And my friend said that Solzhenitsyn believes that he was converted in that moment when he looked to the cross. What the cross is meant to teach us is the poverty of all of our works of righteousness. You'll never be saved by your works of righteousness nor the deeds which you have done. These deeds ought to be done, but to be done is an outgrowth under the Lordship of Christ. But if you can look at this beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, and you can qualify there, then you can know that the kingdom of heaven is yours. And you can also know what it's like to have Jesus reign, reign in your life. Last week when a friend of mine came and took me to the airport in, a week ago yesterday in Rochester, Minnesota, he said, what are you going to preach on when you get home? I said, I'm going to start a series on the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to begin with the Beatitudes. He said, the Beatitudes changed my life. I said, tell me about it. And Dennis Mulholland told me about how in all of his busy activity for the Lord, he had neglected his own home. And how once when he was reading the Bible and once when he was hearing a preacher, the preacher pounded home that it was the father's responsibility in the home to show to his children the way to God and to lead them in worship. Because his work required him to be away from home a good bit, he had alienated his son by coming home and correcting him severely and in anger. He said that as he studied the Sermon on the Mount and as he read the Beatitudes, he realized that he needed the forgiveness of his son. He went to his son's room and he knocked on the door and he said, Son, will you forgive me for correcting you in anger? His boy thought, oh, this is just another one of his spiritual tricks. And he wouldn't even reply. His father said very humbly, it'd mean a lot to me if you would forgive me. The boy wouldn't reply. The father left the room unforgiven. Some days later, the son announced that he was leaving home and joining the United States Marine Corps. His father wouldn't stand in his way. But he went to him and he said, before you leave, I want you to know that I want you to forgive me for having corrected you in anger and not been the father that I ought to be. He said his son didn't know what to say, but he said something like this. He said, oh, well, Dad, if it, if it means anything to you, I'll forgive you. And he said, it means a lot to me. The boy went off to the Marine Corps. They kept up a good correspondence. When he came home his first time on leave, he told his mother on Saturday night, he said, wake me up early in the morning. I want to go to church. This made his father and his mother choke up a good bit because they knew that the Lord was beginning to work in their family. 
and he had begun his work by speaking first to the father. And the father then began to show to his child that he, the father, had a poverty of spirit, that he needed to be increased in grace. And when he admitted his own fallibility and showed to his son love, a family relationship was restored again. Now this is the beginning to know our need of him. The old hymn says, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to know your need of him. For you, Jesus Christ is absolutely necessary. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. Jesus Christ is absolutely available to every one of you. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Some of us have been learning that Jesus Christ is absolutely sufficient. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. O oh God, our Father, we thank thee for the great treasures that are in your word. We thank you for the gracious ministry of the Holy Spirit who speaks to our hearts, demonstrating to us the poverty of our own position and showing us the wrongfulness of our own heinous pride. Help us to know that every last one of us here is always in a position of need and so we pray this day that you will meet those needs by drawing us close unto thyself. Father, I pray for any person in this chapel who has never yet really opened the door of his heart to Jesus Christ, that you will cause that one to know that the first step is simply to acknowledge his need of you. And my friend, if you've never asked Jesus to come into your heart, this day in August 1975 could be the most blessed moment of your life. You could say that this day was a spiritual milestone of gold in which you made a real step toward him. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father, and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with you all, now and forevermore.